Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to our show. You can take your listening further and support our work by becoming a member. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Network Slack community, a members-only newsletter, and members-only blog posts. For the month of February, take 5% off the regular membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code POLITICS. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy code POLITICS. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Washington, D.C. We've got a great podcast today. It's a two-parter. The first part is going to be a conversation with David Korn of Mother Jones and our friend uh, Simon Rosenberg of NDN. Of course, David Korn is also our friend about the State of the Union, the state of American politics today, where they think things are going. You won't want to miss that. And then the second part of the show, we're going to go with a conversation with my former co-host here on this show, a different co-host than Simon. That's Ryan Goodman of NYU who has some really interesting insights that have come from the Pomerantz book that was recently uh, published about his perspective on the investigations into Trump. It is not what you expect. The analysis is not what you expect, and it may change your whole view of the conduct of that investigation. I strongly urge you to stay. That's the second part of the podcast. But for now, let's turn to Uh, the conversation with David and with Simon. So uh, let me start out with the the simple question first, and I'll uh, I'll go in reverse order here. I'll go first with David and then to Simon. What do you think of the State of the Union? I was as pleasantly surprised, I think, as a lot of other people watching Joe Biden on Tuesday night. There was a lot of pep in his step. You're right. Whatever his diet is, whatever smoothie they're giving him, whatever high caloric protein drinks they're giving him, shakes, whatever, I want to know. I mean, I, he was, it wasn't just that he was like energetic. He seemed pretty sharp. I mean, it's, it, it, he's done this a long time, but to be up there in front of the, you know, that audience and to field heckling, any one of us who has ever done stand-up, and I've only done it a few times, knows that's really not easy to do. It's one thing to give a vigorous speech and read the teleprompter, maybe even do a, a, an ad lib or so, but to sort of take the crowd heckling against you and turn it against them, incorporate it, and you know, and, and make some score some really solid points. That is a a, a talent, a skill. It's an accomplishment that we've never had to see happen at a State of the Union address because no one has ever been put under such pressure by such 
rude interlocutors. So, I mean, I thought that was good, but, but just getting back to the message too, I thought the focus on kitchen table economic issues was, was brilliant. And I have never understood, and Simon's the Democratic strategist in the room, maybe you can tell me, I have never understood why Democrats don't get out there and simply bang the crap out of insurance companies, cable companies, and the phone company. I mean, people hate all that stuff. They're getting ripped off all the time. You can throw on the airlines now as well and just say, we're going to do whatever we can to stop these people from ripping you off and then throw in the, the medical, you know, the big pharma and the medical companies, you know, talking about insulin. I mean, this affects tens, maybe over a hundred, hundreds of millions of Americans. And just to say very simply, we want to do this and they do not. The one point he didn't make, which is the example I always use, is to talk about expanding Medicare to cover dental. Okay, very simple. We, the Democratic Party, want you to have your teeth. We want your parents to have your teeth, to have their teeth, not your teeth. And the Republicans don't. They don't care about your teeth. 25% of um, West Virginians over the age of 65 don't have teeth. So why is Joe Manchin not out there saying, I'm for this? Uh, and why are the Democrats out there saying, very simply, elect us, we'll keep insulin below $35 a month, we'll give you teeth, we'll make sure the airlines can't screw you over, and all these other things, and we're going to raise taxes on the wealthy, not on you. They're going to say it's on you, but they're lying. And now we're going to get out of here and go back to work. And they won't do it. I think no, this is no, always, no. I think you know. I think I think you're. I, I I was with you right up to there, but that's what they're doing. And Joe Biden got off the plane in Florida in Ron DeSantis's home state today and said there are more old people here than anywhere in the United States, and they want to raise the price of your drugs. They want to take away your Medicare. They want to take away your Social Security. And we would have expanded Medicaid, but this is one of eleven states that said no, that Ron DeSantis said no. So he's doing exactly, but I'm just saying he did exactly what you were saying today. But they have to keep doing that. They have to do it yeah, almost yeah. every day. You look at what Trump did, repeat this every day, and they have to make that distinction. Well, I, I just, Simon, the two non-democratic strategists here have spewed Democrat strategy. You're a Democratic strategist. Does it make sense to you? Yeah, listen, I think that part of what I think happened in the last few weeks is that Joe Biden in preparing the speech, became convinced that he's done a good job and that he's been a good president. And I think that part of the reason he had so much confidence, pep in his step, all the things you were saying, is that he realized, he looked back at the two years and how much better the country is today than when he came into office. The investments that we've made, they're going to make things even better over the next 10 to 15, 20 years. And he assessed the landscape and said, look, I got a big argument to make here. Let's go make it. And he did with confidence and integrity and you know, he was sharp, as you pointed out, because I think, I think he had time to digest and figure out how to sell what he had done to the American people. I mean, I, I have this basic mantra now that I do is that Joe Biden's been a good president. Uh, the country is better off and the Democratic Party is very strong right now. And we had a very good election. And I think those basic realities, what we're not starting from a defensive crouch, we're not allowing them to define the terms of the debate, that we're not cowering in when the right-wing noise machine, the Wizard of Oz, you know, huffs and puffs and blows and blows, 
that we're just sticking to our knitting, doing our stuff, telling our story, uh, it felt unusual because so much of the discourse over the last two years has been defined by right-wing memes and the, and the, no, the right-wing noise machine. So I do think that you know, this, Democrats have a little bit of Stockholm syndrome sometimes where we have a hard time getting out and just going and making our case. And I think that's what Joe Biden did. And I think it was liberating for him. I think it was liberating for the Democratic Party. I think we have a really powerful argument to make to the American people over the next two years. And we should feel really good. And, and I think to your point, David, the confidence that he exhibited, right, even in the back and forth, right, is going down to Florida, making this case, right? I mean, they're going on offense, you know, and, and in politics, if you're not on offense, you're losing. And I think we spent a lot of the last two years playing defense, uh, no more. And I agree with David, and I agree, I agree with both Davids, is that I think this is a very encouraging sign, and I feel very good about where the Biden presidency is right now. Yeah, I, by the way, try to structure these podcasts so there's always somebody else named David, like <laughs> Dave Sanger. Because then when people say, I agree with David or David made a great point, I feel good. But uh, David Korn, do you think the Republicans were hurt by behaving like assholes? You know, I go back to this conversation I had with a Trump advisor in spring of 2015 before he announced. And I asked him, okay, what is the thing you worry about the most in terms of opposition research for Donald Trump? You know, misogyny, mob connections, deadbeat on paying bills, lying about everything, flip-flopping positions. What do you worry about the most? And he said, actually, we don't worry about anything of that nature. I go, come on, you must. He goes, no. Basically, our theory of the case is that people know he's a bit of an asshole. And they will either want an asshole or not want an asshole. So that's, that's what it will boil down to for us. And it seems to me that a good chunk of the Republican Party wants assholes. That's what they want. And then there are people who are willing to perform to that crowd. Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's shouting out, liar, 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 in her uh, Corella DeVille outfit, the State of the Union, the next day said, I was honored to call the president a liar. That's what the people of Georgia sent me here to do. And, um, you know, way districts are gerrymandered, particularly House districts, where you can have a very homogeneous group of voters. It seems to me that playing the asshole card for a lot of members is what they, are, you know, what they want to do. Now, I think Kevin McCarthy given his druthers, would rather they don't do this, at least not in that way on State of the Union. Having watched the two Jim Jordan hearings yesterday and today, weaponization of government and the whole Twitter bullshit conspiracy theories, they are clearly willing to let them be assholes from the committee room and do all that sort of stuff. So, you know, it's, I think 30% of the public or so, give or take, are with them and Trump on their conspiracy theories and their grievance and their paranoia and their far-right extremism and on their acidity. That's a word. And so we are, how this is going to play two years from now, I don't think we can say, but I think they are very comfortable living within their assholeness and it's not going to change. And, uh, you know, it's going to be reinforced by Breitbart and Fox and OAN. They're going to be rewarded for this and final point, I know this is the long-winded answer. They're going to make a shitload of money off this. As soon, you know, 
that terrible response that Sarah San- Huckabee Sanders gave, in which she said, you know, the only choice is between crazy and normal, uh, meaning that all Democrats are crazy and part of the woke mob and the radical left. You know, all you know, after Biden gave that speech, it was just so off tone and tone deaf. As soon as she finished, I got an email from her because I'm on all these conservative and public mailing list asking me for money based on what she had just said. So they will, they still make money off of this. They still get on Fox because of this. So their incent, the incentive structure is still there for them to act the way they acted at the state of the union. First of all, I think it's asininity or assholery, but I get the point. Simon, I was actually going to go to you and ask you about Sarah Sanders' remarks, which I thought were creepy. I mean, I was watching it and I thought it was like some episode of Black Mirror. She seemed heavily medicated and very slow and very quiet. And then she laid out this very dark image. Some people have compared it to Trump's American carnage speech. And that's where I sort of want to hand it off to you because you have been a well-known opium salesman. And Joe Biden is turning kind of into the happy warrior. We've gotten a lot done. Here's some good things. As you say, Democrats do good stuff for people. And, and, and so setting aside asininity or assholery, the Republican message right now is super negative, And the Democratic message seems to be super positive. Do you just sort of rub your hands together and say, we've got them where we want them? Well, I, it's, this is a really important thing that we all have to talk about, I think, as a family and really come to an understanding about. And I was quoted in Greg Sargent's piece in the Washington Post yesterday about her speech about this idea that I have that the conservative, that MAGA is a negative sentiment machine. It's pumping out negative sentiment into the discourse every day. MAGA wants us to feel bad about our country, bad about our democracy, bad about our leaders, bad about our institutions, bad about each other, bad about everything. That's their whole plan. And one of the antidotes to that, one of the ways that we triumph over MAGA, in my view, is by being positive sentiment machines, by being optimists, by talking about possibilities, as Joe Biden talked talked so much, you know, his line that he's used since his campaign has been, we're a country of possibilities, and, and that we respond to their negative sentiment with positive sentiment. And I think we have to be more intentional about this. I think this is a real, you know, one of the things I advise when I give my talks to the grassroots groups is, you know, have two thirds or three quarters or 80% of your communications be positive. And Stop spending time talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene and promoting them, right? They're good at that. We don't need to help them do that. And I think that we need part of our coming out of this red wave period where we were overwhelmed by right-wing talking points and, and media is, that, is to be more positive and to recognize what a remarkable country we live in, what a blessing it is to be here, to, that when we're going to fight like hell to make sure that everything that we love about this country stays as is. And I let them be the dark, pessimistic. I, I just, I think it's David. It's really important to recognize that pessimism is ascent, is is the MAGA way. It is everything. You know, it's darkness. And and I was struck by how hermetically sealed that speech was. I mean, they, uh, Greg talks about this in the piece yesterday. They use language that nobody knows what they're talking about unless you're following the conspiracy theories really closely. And and remember, you know, when you talk about optimism heading into 2024. 
That politics has been rejected in the presidential battleground in three consecutive elections now. And, you know, they're there. They're not moving from it. They're MAGA. DeSantis is just as MAGA as Trump is if he ends up winning the nomination. And that politics doesn't work in the battleground. And there's muscle memory in the battleground of having now rejected MAGA in three consecutive elections. They've got a problem, right? They can't win with MAGA. And I mean, they can't win without MAGA and they can't win with MAGA. And they're out of, they are out of the mainstream on the sentiment. But only if we fight harder and, and take back the discourse on a day-to-day basis from, the, from MAGA. And we've, I think we've been a little bit too passive in recent years. And it's why I think this kind of new energetic go on offense Biden that we're seeing is an essential tactical step if we're going to have the kind of election next year that we want. By the way, I am a super strong believer in we win when we're on offense, we lose when we're on defense. That was the lesson of my time in the Clinton administration and observing everything ever since. I'd like to sort of pose the same kind of question to both of you, or perhaps it's not really a question. I'd like to present a thought and then get your reaction to it. I had lunch yesterday with a senior person in the White House, and they were super happy about what the State of the Union was like. And the mood in the White House is pretty good. And it was pretty good for several reasons, one of which is speech went well, but another of which is you know, the message went out among Democrats who might challenge Biden. No, you're not. This is the best chance the Democrats have to win. So they don't, and they think he made the case strongly and got rid of for the moment any issues about age. And so Democratic primary battles don't seem super likely. And the reality is that the economy is likely to turn by the end of next year. And Biden's team in the White House right now with Jeff Zients as as, uh, chief of staff and as of a cabinet meeting they just had a couple of days ago, is focused on one thing and one thing only. And that's what you've been talking about. Go out, talk about results, speed up results, deliver for people, and then be able to go out and talk about that. Do you think, David, they've got the strategy right? And they're not complacent by any means. But do you think the optimism about how this is is playing out has some some grounding in fact behind all this? I don't believe once Beach gets rid of some of the problems that still remain for Biden in twenty twenty four. You know, he looked good, still looks old. And his ability to get through the next two years without looking older as he gets older, I think is a tremendous challenge. In some ways, this they're following the playbook to an extent of what Obama did in going in, you know, towards the 2012 election. He got shellacked in 2010 and he came out with a much more populist us versus them strategy. And he did a lot of big speeches. Uh, they, they made, you know, to, some degree they landed, and it wasn't really until the Republicans gave them a plutocrat to run against that that strategy really gelled and and helped Obama win re-election. I mean, I think they've done they have maximized the ammunition they have, right? I think they have a strong case. Biden performed well. You know, I still think he may be too old to run again. Just no matter anything else. I think people care about that. I think people think about that. 
I, even if things are going well, I think pres- the presidency is more about the man or the woman than it is about exactly what's happening in the state of, of, of the union, because this is the leader symbolic and the executive that we picked to run the country. So I think all those issues about him personally do not go away, but they are setting up the best platform in terms of policy uh, that they can, that they can. And, you know, listening to Simon, uh, I thought about the 1970s, you know, when you had the rise of the new right and the rise of the religious right. And what were they? Angry, angry, angry. And they demonized and dehumanized Democrats and liberals and progressives. They, some of them said gay people should act, could actually be executed under God's law. And they talked about how they were, this whole body of Americans were destroying America, destroying Christianity, destroying the nation, da 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 da. Well, they elected Ronald Reagan, who basically endorsed everything they said, but he was optimistic, right? He was at a sunny disposition. He talked about all the great things ahead for America. He took all that angry energy, used it sort of at the grassroots level, but he had a much more positive message. I had him personally seemed strong and vigorous and believed to be an optimist. So anger is kind of an interesting thing to use politically. I don't think, you know, we want to see Biden get into this pessimistic negative tone, but I worry about the MAGA energy still being there, but maybe in a different vessel at the top. And someone who could learn that, you know, the Reagan lesson is just sitting out there. It's pretty obvious. I don't know who will pick it up. But MAGA is still a, a motivating force for the Republican Party that can be used. Doesn't get them all the way there, but it gets them a good part of the way there. So if Joe, at this point, if Joe Biden chooses to run for re-election, I think he'll be unopposed and he'll be our nominee. You know, I think there's time where in the next few months we'll find out if he wants to do it again, if he feels he's up for it. And what he's doing now is going to make whoever is our nominee, whether it's him or somebody else, you know, we still have the same job to do in the next two years, right? We need to make sure that the war in Ukraine goes the way that we want it to. We continue to wound Putin and keep democracy on the march. We also need to make sure the economy here is strong here at home. Those two things to me are going to be the defining issues for the Democratic Party over the next two years. And if we've done a good job in Ukraine and the economy is strong in 2024, we should have the advantage going into the presidential election in 2024. We've had three consecutive elections in a row where we've done really well in the battleground. You know, we're stronger in the battleground than they are. And for all of David's, you know, David is correct that MAGA is a motivating force for them. It may be more of a motivating force for us. I mean, our candidates are raising two, three, four times the amount of money they used to raise. In the House races, our incumbents outraised the Republicans by five to one in some cases. In the Senate races, there were similar margins. We saw unprecedented performance in the early vote uh, in the battlegrounds, and all the measures of intensity in this last cycle favored us. In, even in a midterm, presidential midterm, with inflation being high and Biden's approval being low. And so I do think that this year, the biggest political priority for us as a family is to get into positive territory on the economy versus the Republicans. We're in, we can't do what we want to do in 2024 if they're still beating us on the economy. And given that since 1989, there have been 48 million jobs created in America, 46 million have been created by Democrats, we shouldn't be losing the economic argument to these guys. 
And, you know, they, we've created growth and lower deficits and progress. They've created recession, spiraling deficits and decline. We have to establish that fundamental contrast. I think we can do that. I think Biden is showing that that's what his priority is going to be. I think the millions of people who are motivated to beat MAGA need to join him as information warriors and help us make this case. I mean, the way that I think we have to rethink the war room, which I was in 30 years ago, was that, you know, it's not 20 sweaty kids drinking Red Bull, you know, pumping out videos every day. It's 4 million people going to work as networked and amplifier, you know, uh, patriots who are trying to overwhelm the right-wing noise machine and make sure that we win the big arguments of the day. I think that we have the power to do this. I think we have to organize ourselves differently and better and smarter. And I think that this could be a very, very good two years for us, regardless of who ends up being the nominee. Because to your point, David, I don't see who that sunny, optimistic, Reaganite Republican is on the horizon. It's certainly not DeSantis. I mean, he's a dark figure. He's a very dark figure. And I think that we should not give him power that he doesn't have. I think we have to be very careful as Democrats not to overinflate the threat that he represents. I think he is a dark, I don't think he's well positioned to be a strong presidential candidate. I think we can beat this guy. And we got to have confidence and faith in ourselves that that politics of super MAGA, he's more MAGA than Trump. It's just not going to sell in the battlegrounds in the battleground where they've litigated this stuff in three consecutive elections, and MAGA's lost. So I'm really optimistic about the next two years. I would rather be us than them, and and I think we can take it to these guys as Joe Biden did the other night, as he's doing this week down in Florida. I think I love the kind of tone and sensibility that we're seeing coming out of the White House right now. DeSantis more MAGA than Trump, probably just as fascist as Mussolini. You know, it's a long bumper sticker, but it probably gets us there. I don't know who the, I, I, as you guys were talking, I was like, well, who's the optim? Is it Nikki Haley? Is it Glenn Youngkin? Is it, I don't, I don't see anybody offering that up yet, but uh, it'll be interesting to watch. Hopefully we'll have the benefit of commentary from uh, both of you throughout all of this, because your insights are so great for now on this relatively upbeat week. I want to thank you, David. I want to thank you, Simon. And uh, in a moment, as promised, we're going to turn to our conversation with Ryan Goodman, and we're going to talk about where the various prosecutions of Trump are and where they are going and where we may have gotten wrong our analysis of uh, the quality of the investigations and maybe who were the heroes and the villains in them. That part of the podcast, however, is the part that is members only. I don't think you should miss it. I think you should go become a member if you're not one. We don't ask for much. Just go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership. It's $5 a month. It helps support everything that we do. And uh, we'd be grateful if you did it. But I think you'll be grateful because you'll get to listen to to about 33% more content across all uh, of our podcasts. And then you also get some other written content and there are going to be some opportunities to attend some live events. It's a real, real good deal. It's a bargain. So please join us as a member. Uh, but for now, if you're not a member, thanks for being here, and we'll see you again soon. If you are a member, stand by.